Good afternoon. I'm standing here telling myself, good afternoon. Glad you're here with us today. Glad we could be here on this Good Friday. And it is a Good Friday, amen? What our Savior did for us. Today, we're going to start with communion. The reason we're starting with communion is this is kind of where the day started that we're going to be talking about we're going to be starting at the Last Supper. So if you'll prepare, you take your elements out. And I'm going to read for you the communion passage. This great, I love this passage of Scripture and what it means for all of us that are those that call on Jesus as our Lord and Savior, this gift that we have in communion. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is, the, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We've got to remember. That's what we're here today. This is what our whole purpose is today is to remember what he's done. 
For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Here's the gift to all of us. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without recognizing, without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. By many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with, with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Lord, as we, we pick up at this time of the story that we read in Scripture, when you were having a Last Supper with your disciples. Lord God, and you allow us this opportunity to examine our own hearts. Lord, I don't know how everyone in this room has walked in here today, but Lord, you give us this opportunity right now to examine our own hearts. That we don't bring any blemish, that we don't bring any problems, we don't bring any of these cares that we could sometimes allow to be straddled upon our shoulders. Lord, we could give them away. And Lord, if there's anything that would stop your blessing through this service, Lord, reveal it to us as we examine our own hearts right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Take your bread this morning. Let's hold it high. This represents the body of Jesus Christ. He says, as often as you can, do this. So, Lord, we take this bread right now and we say, thank you, Lord God, for the body that you gave. Lord, you knelt in that garden. You asked the Father if there's another way. Lord, if you could do it a different way, I would love for that to happen. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And you selflessly gave yourself for each and every one of us. We acknowledge that this day. Thank you, Lord God, for what you did for us, what you do for us each and every day. In Jesus' mighty and precious name, go ahead and eat of the bread. Hallelujah. Oh, we thank you, Lord God. We praise you, Jesus. Open up your cup. That represents the precious blood of our Savior. Lord, we take this cup right now, this blood that was sacrificed blood that had to be sacrificed. The giving, again, you were willingly giving of yourself for us. That perfect lamb that was slain. Jesus, that is you. And your blood does so much for us. Oh, Lord God, it removes us from a place of being 
bore with sin and all this complication, Lord, but you, through your blood, you washed us, you cleansed us, you purified us through your blood. We thank you for that now. And Lord, as we take this, we take it in remembrance of all that you did, all the sacrifice that you made, that what we will talk about today. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. To you be glory, honor, and praise. Drink ye all of it in the name of the Lord. Now we will be blessed by our worship team, and I hope you have come ready to sing and honor the Lord. Cam and team. time to invite you this time to stand with me as we start our worship time together. Jesus God. 
Thank you. 
set me free. Christ my Savior, you rescued me. Take this life
Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for delivering us, for winning us salvation, for giving us the Holy Spirit. You've entered our heart. You've given us life. There's none like you. And we just exalt your holy name in this place today, God. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for what you've done. And we exalt you. There is none, none like you. Thank you for your presence right here in this sanctuary right now. We adore you. We love you. And we bless your holy name. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You may be seated here in this great, great presence of the Holy Spirit. We've had communion. We've sat down at the table of the Lord, or we've had the Lord's Supper, as we call it, and we're reminded this was the last meal that Jesus shared with his closest companions. It was the last meal he had before he was arrested, convicted, and then executed. And we're going to continue this afternoon in the chronological order through the events of Jesus' suffering all the way to the cross. And this afternoon, we're going to look at the viewpoint of those who opposed Jesus, those who are his adversaries, the antagonists, and talk about what was... What was in their hearts and in their minds, and wonder too, sometimes do we have the attitude of these antagonists? Can it happen to us, and what might we apply in our own lives today as Christians and followers of Jesus that we can take away from these gospel narratives that talk about those who came against Jesus? The first of Jesus' antagonists that we're gonna talk about this afternoon was sitting right there with him at that last meal, Judas. Judas Iscariot. Judas was an apostle chosen by Jesus. And that's even hard to think about because he's the infamous apostle the one who betrayed Jesus into the hands of those who desired his life and wanted to kill him. He, he was one of the 12, and there was another called Judas. The faithful Judas, when you read through the Gospels, you'll find they've 
call him Jude sometimes or at other times Thaddeus. The traitor, the betrayer, he was identified in the Gospels as Judas Iscariot. In the list of the apostles that's given by Matthew and Mark and Luke, Judas Iscariot has the ignoble distinction of always appearing last, at the end of the list. And in those Gospels, he's called traitor, thief, son of perdition. Who was this? Who was this Judas Iscariot? The Bible is a little bit thin on details. We do have a few bits of information that we can draw from and we can form an outline of who this antagonist was. From his surname, his surname, Iscariot. Some say that Iscariot is a form of Sicari, and that was a radical element of the Jewish sect of the Zealots. They were assassins. Sicari means dagger man. And it's why some refer to Judas, Judas Iscariot, as being one of the zealots. But the Gospels don't really confirm that. They don't say that Judas was a zealot. His surname points to something else. We say Iscariot, transliterated, that's how we say it. In the Gospels, the Greek is Iscariotes, which linguists say comes from the Hebrew, Iscariath, meaning man from Cariath. And Cariath was a city south of Jerusalem in Judea. Now that would make Judas the only Judean apostle. The others were Galileans. And Judeans were known to look down upon the Galileans. The Judean Jews looked down on their brothers in Galilee, even though they were Jewish. The Judeans thought themselves a little more refined, a bit more educated, more sophisticated city people, more sophisticated to the rural country folk, the fishermen of Galilee. And it just seems like something Jesus would do. Hey, he picked a diverse group of people. He, he chose a tax collector. He chose fishermen. There was a zealot. It was Simon the zealot. Why not include a Judean? Now, how would a Judean from the south come to be called by Jesus when he had spent most of his time in the north, up in the region of Galilee? We, we don't have the, the exact details, but the Gospels report that the miracles all the signs that Jesus was performing in Galilee, that became kind of well-known. And crowds of people from the West Coast regions and also from the South in the Judean towns, they came up north to investigate and determine who is this man. And while in Galilee, after all these crowds had come, it was then that Jesus named his 12 apostles. Let's read about that in Luke chapter 6, the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. 
One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. So this is up in Galilee. He's on a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, who he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. There he is, the infamous one at the end of the list. Matthew and Mark's Gospels give confirming accounts. Perhaps Judas Iscariot had heard of the miracle working going on in Galilee, and he went up north like many others. Perhaps he just went up north to sit by the lake like we often do. We can only speculate. But this we know. Judas Iscariot was called by Jesus. He was named an apostle by Jesus. And after that, we know from the gospel accounts that Judas was assigned to be the treasurer for this group of apostles. He was given the responsibility to look after the money. Well, being a sophisticated city man, who better to manage the funds? Who better but Judas? Yet Judas was overcome by greed, and he began to embezzle from this group's coffers. Outwardly, he remained loyal to Jesus and his band of apostles, but inwardly, inwardly, Judas was turning. He was turning toward betraying Jesus, his rabbi, his master, his teacher. He was turning towards betraying him into the hands of those who wanted his life. John's gospel records an incident that appears to be a turning point. When Judas made the decision to turn against Jesus, that's John chapter 12, this is verses one through seven. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why hasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was not intended, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Right there in front of everyone, Judas was humiliated in front of the other apostles in the middle of a dinner party where there were others and, and the friends of Jesus were hosting this gathering. Judas had been disingenuous, hypocritical. Yeah, that's for certain. No doubt he knew in his heart he really didn't believe what he was saying. 
didn't really care for the poor. But what of it? How would anyone know? Stand in the shoes of Judas for a moment and consider what he might have been thinking. Who is this man, Jesus? I heard Jesus tell a very rich man, sell everything you own and give it to the poor. I heard him preach over and over again about showing compassion and kindness to the poor. I heard his words, give to the poor. Now, right here in front of my very own eyes, here's a perfect example. Something so expensive. One year of wages is being put to waste. How was I wrong to say something about it? And he called me out. He called me out right here in front of everyone. Leave her alone. Leave her alone? She's the one who wasted a whole year's salary. I get chastised. Wow. And now he's talking about dying and burial. What is all this fatalistic talk? I considered him the Savior, the Messiah. I know what the prophets said, like, like Daniel. The Messiah's dominion is over everything, and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I left Judea to traipse all over Galilee with him. For what? How's he going to save us? How's he going to establish the kingdom if he's buried? I took care of him and this whole band of wandering Galileans. Without me, they'd still be in Galilee without two pennies to rub together. He can perform miracles, and he's got the charisma to gain thousands of followers. We were supposed to take over. We were supposed to establish the kingdom. And he's talking about being buried. And he calls me out in front of everyone. Leave this woman alone. Judas had to be angry he was embarrassed humiliated in front of everyone disillusioned disappointed Jesus had not lived up to the expectations of Judas Judas wanted money and power and status the prosperity of the world and Jesus the Messiah was supposed to deliver who was this man Jesus not the Messiah that Judas wanted. Oh, this dressing down that he received by Jesus in front of everyone, it had to have gnawed at him. It had to have been just, ah, rankled him, embittered him. And a few days later, that festering came to a head. Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Then two days later, 
Just two days later, during the Passover meal, John's gospel says the devil prompted Judas and he left the meal. He knew that Jesus often met in this garden called Gethsemane, and Jesus did go to the garden, and Judas showed up. Matthew 26, 47 to 50. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And the crowd stepped forward. They seized Jesus. They arrested him. Jesus had been betrayed by one he called friend. Now there are some lessons we can take here from Judas. Jesus did not meet his expectations. He thought the Savior would win him prosperity, the comforts of this world. But Jesus made it clear that was not his mission. He was going to give his life. He was going to die. And that became a stumbling block. It caused embarrassment. In that moment of realization, even anger. It can happen to a friend of Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? Does he meet your expectations? What if following Jesus doesn't result in prosperity? What if following him means comfort or money or status is not secured for you? What if what Jesus asks of you causes embarrassment Maybe humiliation. Will you turn on your friend? Who is this man, Jesus, to you? Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Well, for Caiaphas, it all started at the funeral of Lazarus. You know, usually at a funeral, the people mourn the death, they remember the life, and then they bury the one who is past. Then, usually, the deceased stays deceased, and the people must move on. However, when Jesus showed up a few days late to the funeral of Lazarus, it wasn't to bring another eulogy. Instead, he came to bring him back to life. Jesus spoke, and then behold, a dead man came walking out of the tomb, still wrapped up as a mummy. As you can imagine, this caused quite a stir among the people. See what happens after this funeral turned into a resurrection. John eleven forty seven through 53 says this. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. 
Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. To bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Rather than worship the man who could raise the dead at a funeral, Caiaphas and the priests see him as a threat. You know, if Jesus was allowed to continue, then he was going to keep on convincing people that he was the Messiah. And if he kept on convincing people that he was the Messiah, they weren't going to listen to the priests anymore. And if they weren't going to listen to the priests anymore, well, then the Romans would come and destroy all of Judaism. From that point on, Caiaphas, as the leader, the high priest, knew that he had to take matters into his own hands. And to his delight, Judas, oh, Judas, set the perfect trap, and it worked. Not many days later, Jesus had been betrayed. He was arrested, and he stood in the presence of the entire Sanhedrin for trial. Now, you may be wondering today, why is Caiaphas, the high priest, you know, the one who probably should be the most wise and discerning, when it comes to religious things, the wise and discerning among the Jews, why is he going after Jesus? What did he have to lose? Well, to understand what happens next, we must enter the mind of Caiaphas himself. You know, ever since this man, Jesus... This man from Nazareth, ugh, Nazareth. Ever since he showed up in Jerusalem, it has been utter chaos. Does he not realize this is the most important week of the year for the Jews? Passover is coming and Jesus is pulling these stunts. I mean, who does he think he is riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem? <laughs> who does he think he is? Right? He has no respect for the nation of Israel. It's been reported to me that Jesus, on the Sabbath, decided it was okay for him to heal people. What a disgrace. Doesn't he know we're supposed to rest on the Sabbath? You know what else? Speaking of no respect for Israel, him and his disciples went through fields plucking grain and eating on the Sabbath. What a disgrace. And you know, I suppose as the high priest, I might let those things go if it wasn't for what Jesus said about the temple. You know that he said he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. <laughs> the temple is the very presence of Adonai. Anybody who threatens the temple deserves nothing but death. This is where the presence of Adonai dwells in the temple. And considering our history, Considering the exile, the destruction of the temple, surely he can't be the Messiah. 
There's no way. Not only that, but this man who parades into Jerusalem on a donkey, if he really was the Messiah, does he not realize that the Romans are here? He doesn't seem at all concerned that Romans, Italians, are in Jerusalem, policing the streets, taxing us. He didn't go in. He didn't go in and take out a sword and go after the Romans. No, he went after us. He went straight to the temple. Surely no Messiah who doesn't care about the oppression of the Jewish people could ever be the one whom Adonai has sent. And lastly, he calls himself the son of God. I'm not even supposed to say that. He calls himself the son of God. Surely there is no opportunity, there is no way that somebody who's going to disgrace the Sabbath, somebody who's going to mention even destroying the temple, and someone who does not care about the oppression of the Romans could ever be the Messiah whom God has sent. Who is this man, you ask me? I don't know. But I know that it is my job as the high priest to take care of him. Because if I don't get rid of him, everything that we have is going to be ruined. He must be exterminated. What did Caiaphas have to lose after all? Well, to begin, his career his reputation, and quite frankly, his entire livelihood. So he, he decides to discard Jesus. And I think if he could have killed them, he would have done it right then and there with his bare hands. But the Jewish law prevented that from happening. And so instead, Caiaphas decides that though, yes, the Romans are there, he's going to use them to his advantage, and he sends him off to the Roman governor that was occupying Jerusalem to have him killed. Church, the story of Caiaphas to me is truly tragic. How could somebody, the high priest of God, the only one who could encounter his presence, the one who knew the Torah, the one who made knowing God his very life's focus, not see clearly that Jesus was exactly whom the prophets had spoken about? I believe it was for this very reason. When our desire for how life is supposed to go is threatened by Jesus' demands for our life, we are left with only two options, total surrender or total rejection. C.S. Lewis speaks about the choice before us when it comes to Jesus in his famous book, Mere Christianity. He says this, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the very devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with only patronizing nonsense. 
about this great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying it, or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Church Caiaphas wasn't ready to give up his life because it was comfortable. He was important in the community. Though he was stuck with the Romans, he was used to it, and his livelihood depended on maintaining things as they always were. And so today, my friends, I believe the same choice is before us all. Jesus demands our whole lives. He's not looking for half-committed disciples, right? He's not even looking for those who know facts about him but don't know him. He's not interested in those who are religious but aren't willing to live for him. You know who he's looking for today, church? Those who are willing to give up career or money or family or livelihood or reputation or importance or anything that gets in the way willing to give up everything just to be counted as a follower of Christ. He wants, he, he wants those who desire nothing for their own name, but to do all for his name. Caiaphas wasn't willing to surrender his own life, despite the miracles, the signs, the wonders right in front of his face. And so today I want to ask you, are you willing to surrender everything in order to follow Jesus? David Platt says, my prayer is that people will see that following Jesus costs you everything you have and everything that you are. And my prayer is that people will see that giving it up for Jesus is worth it. When faced with Jesus, we only have two options. We can call him Lord in total surrender, or we call him liar and lunatic in total rejection. I know who Caiaphas thought this man was, but the question to you today is who do you say that Jesus is. I look for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am His forever. tears in times of sorrow darkness not yet understood through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good but mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength 
in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work. Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine John 18, verses 33 through 40 state, Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you king of the Jews? <laughs> Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? 
Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time, at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then John 19, 1 through 5, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered around, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, hear or behold the man. And then we read in Matthew 27, verses 19 through 26. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today and a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have him and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. His full name, his full Latin name was Marcus Pontius, Pontius Pilatus. Pilate's political position gave him military power, uh, though his soldiers mainly policed their civilian life. He was head of their judicial system with the power to inflict capital punishment. Coins have been found bearing his image 
because as Roman governor, he had control of the monetary system and the collection of taxes. Pilate had a small allotment of civil control, even over the Sanhedrin. The, the body of the Jewish leaders who had made accusations toward Jesus, which would explain why they came to him for the order to crucify him. Pilate also had the power to appoint the high priest. Now, Pilate's hatred for the Jews was intense, and he deliberately infuriated them. Under Jewish law, images of the Roman government were forbidden in Jerusalem, but Pilate one time allowed troops to carry shields with their Roman emperor, Tiberius, into the city, who they considered to be a god. But a great crowd, a great crowd of these Jews traveled to the Judean capital of Caesarea in protest, and they lay prostrate around Pilate's palace for five days until Pilate relented. So with that little bit of background, let's again try to just walk in Pilate's shoes, if you will, for just a few moments. It's Passover. Everybody comes to Jerusalem for Passover. All the Jews come in. This is a major celebration for them. And Jesus, this, this rabbi, a teacher, he was thinking, you know, Pilate, I'm thinking I've, I've heard about this man. I've heard, and people travel him. And matter of fact, he's going around and he's teaching, and, and the crowds seem to be getting larger and larger that follow him. And it's been said by the, the writer Josephus that there were two million people in Jerusalem at that time. It's going to take all that I can with all the control that I can muster up to try to keep these people in control with all those people here in town. And then this high priest Caiaphas getting under my skin with his talk about me being a traitor to Rome because Jesus is saying he's a king. Who is this Jesus? Who is this man? Well, these Jewish leaders, they keep bringing this man or keep calling out and bring this man to me because they want justice. They actually call him a criminal. I told them to take him and go judge him by their own laws. But they said he's only done or what he's done is worthy of capital punishment and we want him dead. I asked this man, I go back in and I asked this man, Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And he asked, as this man asked me if it was my own idea that I asked this question, I'm, I'm not a Jew. <laughs> so, the, so the kingdom he speaks of too is, is not even of this place. He said it's from someplace else. This man makes statements. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify of that truth. And everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Well, I heard he likes to ask questions, so I asked him, what, what is truth? So I went back, into the, or went back out to the leaders and told them that I have no reason to execute this man. By this, or, but this crowd continued to yell, crucify him. So I had my guards take him out and scourge him. They, they beat him, hoping that this may appease, appease this, this blood-loving people that wanted him punished. 
And then to add another layer to all this complication, I have a wife who had a dream. And she's been telling me to have nothing to do with this innocent man. Well, I'm a smart man. I listen to my wife. I've suffered a great deal, she said, because of a dream I had about him. Well, I'm suffering too. But after this, he starts, he takes him out and his soldiers begin to scourge him, to beat him. And then they dressed him in this kingly garment, this purple robe. They even made a crown of thorns for him. Hey, every king needs his crown or thrones, pardon me, thorns. <laughs> I was expecting, once the crowd saw what we had done to him, that they would relent and they would quiet down so that the city might move toward the, the to move away from the riot that it was starting to sound like. So it was customary at the time of Passover that a prisoner would be released back to them. And I exclaimed to this crowd, behold this man. I was certain that this man, this beaten and this bloodied man would have been enough for them to say, let him go. But I asked them one last time, what shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Messiah? But they crowd out, they wanted Barabbas, a known murderer and an insurrectionist. So I took my seat and I asked for a laver of water. I washed my hands as the crowd continued to yell and scream for Jesus', Jesus crucifixion. I am innocent of this man's blood. And the crowd yelled, his blood be on us and on our children. I'm starting to wonder, who is this man? Other than the innocent person that I see before me. But the crowd screams their displeasure and left me with only one decision. And I hope that in this group today, we don't go where the crowd will always take us. They yelled, crucify him. Honestly, I'm just confused at this point. I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm mad, but mostly I'm confused. You know, I've heard about this Jesus man for weeks. I've heard about the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he's performed, but every time I've tried to get close to him, the crowd swells around him and I've never actually been able to see it myself. But this is what I hear. And so I thought the opportunity presented itself. Earlier this week, a king came riding in into Jerusalem. At least that's what I heard. And so just like everyone else, I took the palm branches and I laid them down before him. And I, really, I took my coat off and I laid it down on the ground. And we all yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. And I can't tell you how excited I was. The Messiah is finally here. But then the Messiah didn't go and grab his sword and start to take out the Romans the way that the Messiah should have. No, instead he went into the temple and he flipped the tables of the money changers. 
He went after the Jews instead of the Romans. And at that moment, I realized this isn't the type of Messiah we're looking for. And so fast forward a few days, and I find myself in the crowd again. And this time, the king that we saw riding into Jerusalem is standing in front of Pilate with handcuffs. And so I don't know exactly how it all happens, but before we know it, we're choosing Barabbas over Jesus. Yes, the murderer, Barabbas. I don't know. Something happens in the crowd where even I'm yelling, choose Barabbas. We choose Barabbas. (laughs) And at that moment, I look over in the crowd and I see Jesus' mother and his disciples. And they weren't screaming. They weren't rioting the way, the rest of the way that we were. No, his mom and his disciples were there silent, tears down their face, looking at the one who they thought was going to be the king of Israel in handcuffs about to be crucified. And honestly, crucifixion seemed a little intense for me. Seemed a little much. You know, I could have went with just some jail time. But the crowd didn't leave it up to jail time. They said, crucify him. And I didn't want to stand out among the crowd. And so I just said, crucify him as well. And so you're asking me, who is this man? (laughs) I don't know. I thought he was king. I thought he was finally the Messiah that we've been waiting for. I thought he was finally our chance at getting rid of the Romans. But at this point, I'm not so sure he was after all, because there could never be the Messiah sent from God going to be crucified? Could never be. We've seen this story before. And every time that a Messiah, a so-called Messiah, is crucified, well, they stay in the grave. And I'm not so sure anything different is going to happen this time. Who is this man? I don't know. But he sure isn't the Son of God. You ever wonder why did the crowd yell for Jesus to be killed? Didn't it seem like Pilate at the time was trying to let him go for free? Wasn't Pilate washing his hands and he was just going to get rid of him? Why would those who called him king less than a week ago now turn on him? And I want to talk quickly about why exactly what happened to the crowd is a major danger for us today. You know, all the way through Jesus' ministry, the crowd follows him, but maybe for the wrong reason. Let's look at John 6. It says this. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered them, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, what sign will then you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? (laughs) You know, Jesus then responds angrily towards the crowd because all they were looking for was another sign and another miracle. 
It seems the crowd wasn't interested in following Jesus. They just wanted a show. John 12, 18 says, Many people, because they'd heard about this, that he had performed the sign, they went out to meet him. And so as the crowd goes out to meet him and see the signs and wonders, it doesn't go exactly as planned. In verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And church, I see the same danger and desire in our church today. I believe the desire to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and to follow Jesus in many places is secondary to seeing the power of God on display. I believe many people are more interested in seeing signs, wonders, and miracles than actually following Jesus. Don't, under, don't misunderstand me. The power of God displayed through signs and wonders was used by Jesus to show that he was who he said he was. But I think many are more interested in seeing a sign and than believing and following Jesus, just like the crowd. Church, Jesus did not come to impress us. He didn't come to entertain us. He came that we might believe that he is the son of God. And truly the tragedy of the crowd is that throughout the gospels, though they saw sign after sign and exorcisms and healings, they never placed their faith in Jesus. Maybe some did. But as soon as they were before Pilate and as soon as the majority of the crowd turned away from believing in him to accusing him because he's not willing to do signs for them anymore, they wanted to crucify him. And so quickly, I believe we can learn two lessons from the crowd today. The first is that we ought not look for signs of power. If God decides to perform healings and miracles and signs of power for you to see, it is simply for the purpose of glorifying God. But that cannot be the end in themselves, right? If any prophet or pastor or church or ministry is more interested in miracles than Jesus, really they're no different than the crowds who abandon Jesus. The second lesson that I believe we can learn is that the majority of people are not going to follow Jesus. <laughs> Maybe that's a newsflash, probably not. The popular of the opinion of the day will never be in favor of following Jesus. Though many people may call themselves believers and Christians, and though many people may be interested in the things that Jesus can do, the majority of people are not going to follow Jesus. And I believe that many in the crowd through Jesus' ministry believed he was the Messiah. But on that day of execution, the peer pressure of the crowd caused all to turn away from him, and the majority opinion caused the very Son of God to be crucified. Just a week before they crowned him and worshiped him as King and Messiah, and now five days later, by unanimous vote, they crucified the King of Kings. My question to you today is, what about you? Will you succumb to the pressure of the world that says Jesus was just a good teacher or that the Bible is a book of antiquity, outdated, homophobic, Will you allow the majority culture to determine which way is right for you? Young people, will you allow TikTok to tell you that Jesus was a made-up religious being for people to feel better about themselves and use as a crutch? <laughs> Middle-aged people, are you going to let Facebook <laughs> tell you that Jesus was good, but his church is unnecessary? Just do this faith thing yourself. Seasoned people. 
Are you going to let the name of Jesus, the one that you know be know to be true, be dragged through the mud by the enemy and cause young people in masses to continue to fall away from following him? My friends, we have a battle on our hands. The majority is no longer in favor of Jesus. The crowd believed if everyone else has changed their mind about him, he must not be who he says he is. And what about you? The world says that Jesus was nothing more than a good teacher and it wasn't the son of God. My question again, who do you say that Jesus is? That is the question, who do you say that he is? I invite you at this time to stand. And our response to that question can be worship because we're not gonna worship just some guy who was around a while ago. We're not gonna worship something that existed and then passed away and doesn't continue into eternity. But today I invite you, let's take a moment right now and worship the eternal Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Precious blood shall never 
church of God, be he saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds alive. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die and shall be till
One more to talk about, so you may be seated. How great the chasm, that song started. How great the chasm that Jesus spanned and given his life. Oh, those antagonists, they didn't recognize him. They didn't see him. They didn't see Jesus as the one who could span that chasm from sin to reconciliation with God Ah, Judas. Judas didn't see it. The high priest saw they had their agenda. The Roman governor lost in his skepticism. The abusive crowds and uh, how they were influenced. To all those antagonists, Jesus, he was a disappointment. He threatened their place of power. He, He was an agitator who needed to be eliminated. Ah, and to, to others who were easily influenced, they were pressured, they just turned to condemn him. Yeah, if only he would perform a sign or a miracle. No, 
but that didn't happen. There's a final group of antagonists that we'll consider today. Jesus went from Judas to the high priests. They had their hearings, sent him off to Pilate. Pilate held his hearing, turned Jesus over to be crucified. The crowds, they were mocking him and he was being led by this final group that we consider today, the Roman soldiers, the ones who carried out the physical execution of Jesus. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus to this group, to to this group of men who had been ordered to crucify him? A Roman soldier called a legionary because he was a member of a Roman legion, they were part of a well-trained, disciplined, professional army. A Roman soldier would be recruited in their teens, maybe to about 20 years old, and they entered, enlisted into service for 16 years. Their training was rigorous. They learned how to follow orders. There was hierarchy. There was order. There was officers. The legions had ranks of officers, from centurion to tribune, prefect, legate. A centurion led a century of men. Well, that would be a hundred. Well, that was originally what it was, a hundred. In the time of Christ, it may have been about 80. So it was a pretty good group of men. 50 to 60 centuries would form a legion. When they weren't actively involved in military campaigns across the empire, the legions were dispersed around the empire to maintain order and to mete out justice. And that included executions. So legionaries under the command of a centurion were common. They were common throughout the Roman Empire. We find Roman soldiers and centurions mentioned in the biblical record. They had a major role in the execution of Jesus. On the day that Jesus was executed, he was one. He was just one of three who were executed. The the Romans employed crucifixion extensively as a means of meeting out justice and, and executing those who were condemned. The Romans weren't the originators of this method, uh, crucifixion, but they had honed it. They had really honed it as an effective means of terror in, in both their military campaigns and in criminal justice. Crucifixion was broadly utilized to execute criminals, runaway slaves, uh, rebellious slaves, anyone practicing sedition, anyone who even sympathized with somebody who was uh, seditious. It was unlawful, though, to crucify a Roman citizen, with the exception of deserters of the army uh, and the treasonous. So, so crucifixion was common. Roman historians give accounts of times where hundreds were Crucified. There were mass crucifixions, even thousands. For example, in 4 BC, the Roman general Verus crucified 2,000 Jews. 
This wasn't something surprising. A centurion in the commonwealth of the empire who was charged with having his men carry out crucifixion had no doubt been desensitized to the brutality and the violence of this method of justice. It was all part of a day's work. It was orders, orders to be followed, orders to be carried out. A fourth century Roman military historian, Flavius Vegetius, he wrote about the military, the officers, the ranks. This is what he wrote about a centurion. A centurion is to be strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers and obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed and to have their arms constantly rubbed and bright. The centurion is to be vigilant, temperate, active, and readier to execute orders he receives than to talk. The centurion took orders from those in authority above him, and then he was to respond to those orders just as quickly and as effortly as talking. So in a matter of just a thought, he hears an order, boom, he responds to that order. Order, discipline, this was the way of the Roman soldier, it was the way of the centurion, it was the way of the ranks. When the Roman governor Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified, he handed him over to a Roman centurion and his soldiers that were under his command. Let's read Mark 15, verses 16 to 20. The soldiers led Jesus away into the place that is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him, falling on their knees. They paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes. Then they led him out to crucify him. Were these soldiers out of control? Were they undisciplined? Were they acting out on their own? No. No, they were under the command of a centurion. They had a commanding officer. The humiliation and the mocking of Jesus was all part of the normal execution. It was part of the process. It was part of the process for the Romans to humiliate the condemned. Before crucifixion, a scourging was mandated. It was part of the law. It's what they had to do. Jesus had been scourged. Further brutality might follow. There are accounts that the condemned would have their tongues excised or they'd have their eyes plucked out. Jesus was brutally scourged and then he was further beaten. More, more abuse. Then they taunted and they mocked him and that too was part of the procedure to humiliate the condemned. The legionnaires were just doing what was expected of them. And then they led Jesus away to be crucified, all under the watch of their centurion. Luke 23, verses 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right 
and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. There's someone looking for a sign again. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment you are the Roman centurion, the one in authority over all the soldiers who have carried out what you're seeing before your eyes. You've watched them flog and humiliate a condemned Jew, three of them actually, Where Jesus is concerned, you saw how they mocked him, how they beat him, how they did it with merciless efficiency. Then they carried out the sentence. They nailed him to the cross. Now you've done this dozens of times, maybe even hundreds of times. You've carried out the edict of the empire. Your men did what you ordered. And it's just another worthless Jew. But something, something's bothering you. You're bothered, you're getting a little antsy. This Jew is different. The governor couldn't find him guilty of any crime. Now you watched that. You witnessed it. You saw the governor come out and wash his hands. You heard him say, I don't find anything that that this man's guilty of. And I'm going to wash my hands. I'm innocent of his blood. And you saw. You saw this Jesus. He didn't protest. He didn't put up a fight. He didn't assert anything about his innocence. Now, he's hanging there on the cross, and you have seen him say to one of the criminals, today you'll be with me in paradise, in some kingdom. Could he really be a king? You saw how he prayed. This guy was nailed to a cross. And you... You saw him pray for those who pounded the spikes into his flesh. He prayed that they would be forgiven. Who is this man? Who is he? Imagine, imagine this going through the mind of the centurion. The experience of how gentle Jesus was tortured and crucified. It's gnawing at him. 
Then he just couldn't deny it. He just couldn't deny it any longer. Mark 15, the moment Jesus dies. Mark 15, verses 37 to 39. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Ah, the centurion, hardened, hardened by the horrific scenes of battle and, and brutality of execution, he came to recognize and declare what every single person must come to realize and declare. Who is this man? Surely Jesus is the son of God. He saw, he saw the humility he saw the kindness and the tenderness of a man brutalized without mercy in front of all his, his, his soldiers, the, the legionaries, who shortly before had been making sport of Jesus, mocking him. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. In front of those soldiers and then in front of the Jews, the Jews who he saw despised Jesus. They cried out to have him crucified. They wanted a murderer to go free, and they wanted this innocent man to be crucified. Here's this soldier, this Roman centurion, and he doesn't care. His men, the Jews, no. He declares, surely this is the Son of God. Perhaps you've never really believed it in your heart. You've never been able to say it out loud like that, regardless of who's around you, like that Roman centurion did. Because Jesus, he's just not meeting your expectations. He disappoints. You've seen it. If you acknowledge Jesus, your desire for the way life should go might be threatened. You'll have something to lose. Your career, livelihood, some things will be ruined. You, you know, you just can't surrender. Or you're just skeptical. You're just, you got questions. You know, like Pilate, he had his questions. They, they, they just weren't answered You've got your truth. Or you're following the crowd. You're swayed. You're influenced by the culture. How many Christian influencers are there anyway? No, no, it's the culture that's pulling and swaying. And, and you know all the influencers. They're not in favor of Jesus. No, they're going to turn on you. They'll turn on you if you say, surely he's the son of God. Even if you mention Jesus, you know they're going to turn. Maybe you just need to be sure. You need a sign. You need that sign. You need that miracle. And then you'll be sure. Then you can say it. You know, none, none of that is new. It's nothing new. 
That was going on the day he was crucified. Still goes on today. The same reasons that Jesus was rejected by his antagonists. Judas, the high priest, the governor, the crowds of people who cried for his crucifixion, they all could have acknowledged Jesus as king of kings, as the son of God, just like the centurion did. The centurion, least likely of all. He didn't talk to Jesus. He wasn't a Jew. He didn't have anything to do with the Jewish faith or anything they were talking about, messiahs. He had no interaction with Jesus. To him, Jesus was just another condemned Jew to be executed, orders to be followed, and he carried out those orders. But all the while, he was observing, watching, taking it in, and that battle-hardened heart softened up. And he received the truth And he declared it out loud. No longer an adversary. No longer an antagonist. Today, who is this man to you? Who is Jesus to you? Can you say without equivocation, surely he is the son of God? Because one day, one day, We're all going to make it. We're all going to make that declaration. You know, we heard earlier today, there is, there's only two options. There, There is only two. His way or not. We're all going to make the declaration. Either in this life, with a heart softened, receiving the truth, Or in the next life, beyond the opportunity to make a difference. God's word tells us so. And I conclude with this scripture. Being found in appearance of man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge. Truly, this is the Son of God. Who is this Jesus to you? About your life, I hear you speaking. But who do you say I am? Some say a prophet, some say a priest come back to life. You keep asking, Who do you say I am? 
trust in anyone it's Jesus if I put my hope in anything it's you if I'm gonna follow anyone it's Jesus if I'm sure of anything it's always you if I put my trust in anyone
exalted over all. The Christ, the King, exalted over all. If today you're one who's never ever really said this, surely, surely, this is the Son of God. You don't have to leave. We'd love to meet you. You could come up to these altars in a minute and we'll just love to talk to you and share with you more about who we just sung about, the Christ, the King, the living God. And if you have been a follower of Jesus for a little while or for many, many years, but these things pull on you, expectations, maybe they're not met and tempts you a little bit or things might need to change an area of position it's getting uh, because of your faith it's threatened or you've got questions or you're getting swayed you're getting pulled by a lot of pressure from the culture yet you, 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 you want to keep that commitment let's just pray let's pray as we go and make it a point to, to come back and be with God's people and celebrate the eternal life that Jesus won, the resurrection, his resurrection that showed he proved he has a power over death. Father, thank you. Thank you for every soul that's in this sanctuary today. And God, if there's anyone here or is listening that has never ever yielded like that hard, Roman centurion, a violent, violent man, brutal. And yet he, he acknowledged, he saw Jesus die and everything that he went through and said, surely, surely he's the son of God. Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here who for the first time is saying that in their heart, you're meeting them and you're, you, you, you'll turn uh, with a smile on your face as they just repent and say, I want you Jesus, to be the Lord of my life. God, I pray and ask for that great grace. And God, if there's anyone here who is, who is following you and, and they have felt these things, these temptations to turn or to betray their faith, God, I just pray for strength and the power of the resurrected Holy Spirit to fill and to give strength and endurance and perseverance in God that you would minister to those hearts and you would assure them ah, what they followed, what they have confessed. It's true. It's still true today. As true as it was that day Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Thank you, God. Bless your people as they go and return them back to us to worship you and to celebrate what your son did, Jesus, when he resurrected from that grave. Thank you for it, Father. We ask it all in his powerful